The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. You can turn with me now to Paul's first epistle to Timothy, chapter 2. And as you're turning there, I just want to say, um, Randy Pizzino was one of the first probably Reformed Baptist pastors that I got to know as a very young man, a very, very, very young pastor. And I've always been very thankful for Pastor Pizzino. He was, he's one of the things I would say characterized him of many positive qualities that he had was he was an encourager of young men. And uh, I experienced that encouragement many times. I have I have some books in my library, different ones that he gave me from time to time and signed and wrote a note to me in those books and as expressions of friendship and encouragement. And uh, in fact, when I was um, uh, considering the, the, the call for, to the church here and whether I should be open to considering coming here and was seeking advice from pastors about that, he was one of the men uh, that I talked to, to get, gave me some helpful advice. So he's going to be dearly missed. He's one of the great lights uh, in our churches that God has raised up. And we're, we're quickly seeing a generation of men who are passing on to be with the Lord. And may God help us to pick up the torch that they left behind and to continue to carry it. All right, I'm going to read the first eight verses. Uh, no, 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 no. I'm going to read verse 8 to 15, sorry. I uh, get stuck on last week's passage, First uh, Timothy uh, chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. So follow with me as I read. I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, in like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your holy word. And as we continue to work our way through this epistle uh, of Tim, uh, written to Timothy by the Apostle Paul, we acknowledge before you our great need of uh, your grace and strength and wisdom, the work of your spirit in our hearts as preacher and also as hearers, that we would correctly and accurately understand your word and its application to our lives. And not only that we would understand it, but that we would receive it as it is not the words of men, but the word of our God who made us and the God who knows what is best for us. We pray you would give us receptive hearts and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> When we think about evangelism uh, and missions, what, what is the goal of evangelism <coughs> and missions? Or what are the goals? Well, someone might say, well, we desire to see people saved from their sins and reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And indeed, that's one of the great goals and motivations of evangelism and missions, but that's not the only goal. Think about the Great Commission. Most of us are familiar with it as it's given to us in uh, Matthew 28, verse 19 and following. Jesus said, go into all the world, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. But you'll notice this commission includes not just one, but three activities. First, we have the main verb, make disciples. And then we have two participles that describe activities that are connected to making disciples. This work of making disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all things Christ has commanded. So the first goal is to make disciples. 
Or we might put it this way, the goal of evangelism, missions, is to see people truly converted, to see sinners turned out of the way of death and damnation and into the way of faith and devotion to Jesus Christ. The second goal is baptizing them. And note that baptism is one of the ordinances of the church. It's an outward symbol both to the believer himself or herself and to others of a person's conversion and union with Jesus Christ. And normally it's the initiatory rite in which believers are first received into the fellowship of the church. So we could say that a second concern of biblical evangelism is to see men and women publicly confessing their faith in this God-appointed way and becoming rightly related to the church of Jesus Christ. And then we have a third goal of biblical evangelism and missions, namely teaching them to observe all things that Christ has commanded us. And when we, when we read the book of Acts and we look at what the apostles did, this is precisely how they carried out the Great Commission. They went out, they preached the gospel, they made disciples. When people believed the gospel and they repented and put their trust in Christ, they, they baptized them and then they gathered them into local fellowships where they were cared for and shepherded and they were taught to observe all things that Christ had commanded them. That's how they carried out the Great Commission. And this reminds us, uh, dear friends, that gospel preaching, evangelism and missions has a higher purpose than simply our own personal uh, salvation, as important as that is. It also has to do with our inclusion into a community, a community of believers, a Christian church. It's driven by the concern that God might be glorified in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Ephesians 4.21. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, Ephesians 5.25. Christ is building his church, Matthew 16.18. The apostles planted churches. They wrote letters to the churches. The church, as Paul tells Timothy over in chapter 3, verse 15 of this epistle, is the pillar and ground of the truth. And the New Testament is very clear. That it's God's design that every believer become part of and deeply devoted to a local church. And also God has given careful instruction in his word regarding what each local church is to be doing and how each local church is to be regulated. And this brings us back to our study of Paul's first epistle to Timothy. I remind you that in this epistle... Uh, Paul is giving instruction to Timothy regarding the supervision of the church at Ephesus. And uh, as we've seen, as we, when we came to this second chapter, he's beginning to urge upon Timothy important guidelines about the worship of the church and the regulation of the church's priorities and practice. The first thing Paul mentions at the beginning of this chapter is the prayers of the church. We spent a few weeks looking at that. The kinds of prayer we are to engage in, for whom we are to pray, verses 1 to 2. Then he gives the reasons for such prayers. And we saw that the prayers of the church for all men and for those in authority are to be driven by an evangelistic and missionary burden, verses 3 to 7. Well, as we pick up now... This morning with this new passage I just read in your hearing, Paul is transitioning to a different focus. Actually, well, actually, verse 8, the text we'll be looking at today, continues to give teaching on prayer, uh, but it's also the beginning of a transition. It serves as both a conclusion to his teaching on prayer and an introduction to his teaching on sexual distinctions and role relationships between men and women in the church. He speaks to the men... In verse 8, about their duty with respect to prayer. Then he speaks to the women about proper attire in the church, verses 9 to 10. And then he addresses the distinctive roles of men and women in the church, verses 11 to 15. Now, as many of you know, uh, this can be a very controversial passage. Perhaps as I was reading it, some of you were thinking, well, I wonder where this is going to go. I wonder how the pastor is going to deal with this one. And this is one of those we come to. And if you have any compassion for your pastors at all, you immediately think, boy, I'm glad I'm not the pastor, right? <laughs> I'm glad I don't have to speak on this. This should be interesting. 
Yeah, well, it's true. This is not an easy passage. And there are things in this passage that are not very popular today. Yet the fact that this teaching is not popular really only highlights how important it really is for us. If we would not be swept away by the latest cultural fads and perversions of our society in its rebellion against God. Now, on the one hand, it's true, and it's, I think it's important that we acknowledge this and we, we recognize that this is the case, that it's true that the teaching of Scripture on the roles of men and women has often been distorted and abused in the interest of a kind of male chauvinism. <clears throat> Sadly, men have greatly sinned against women in the past and still do. Men can diminish women's accomplishments, limit uh, women's freedom for self-centered reasons, and in unbiblical ways. Men have sometimes squelched and demeaned the gifts and talents of their wives and have treated them like little more than their personal slaves. Some men sexually assault women, and some abuse their wives and children, and many degrade women through pornography. It's not just radical feminists who are responsible for the breakdown of the family. And the confusion that we see in our day, the responsibility also lies with men who have failed to be the servant leaders in the home, in the church, and in society that God has called them to be. The Bible is clear that both men and women are created in the image of God. And both have equal value and worth before God. And both are to be treated with love, respect, and fairness And also the gifts and the talents that God gives to both are to be encouraged and acknowledged and not squelched. Also, both men and women share together in the creation mandate to subdue the earth and to exercise dominion over God's creation as as co-vice regents over God's creation. And both are equal recipients of all of the blessings of salvation in Jesus Christ. And this is very important, and we must never forget these things. But at the same time, men and women are different. God never intended them to be exactly the same. In fact, those differences contribute to the, uh, the overall beauty and, of this world of, of variety that God has made. There are physical, biological, and hormonal differences between men and women. There are also distinctions that God has ordained in terms of their roles and functions in the home and in the church. And this is what's under attack in our day with the rise of a kind of radical feminism and the acceptance of homosexuality and same-sex marriage and then uh, the breakneck speed with which transgenderism has gained mainstream acceptance in our society in recent years and is even promoted now as something wonderful and healthy and a sign of progress. The whole concept of gender is now treated as a fiction. Sexual distinction and gender, we're told, is nothing but a social construct. Indeed, all truth claims are nothing more than social constructs, we're told. There's no such thing as as absolute truth, transcendent truth that is true for all times and for all people. Only your truth and what you feel is right for you. So, in, in a climate like this, the whole idea that there are distinctions between men and women by divine design, is completely rejected. And one of the results is this, that men no longer know what it means to be a man. And women no longer know what it means to be a woman. But over against this, over against what's been called the androgyny of postmodern times, God's word insists that gender is not a fiction. It is a God-created, God-given fact, and the identity of every human being is gender-specific. There are differences between men and women going all the way back to creation when God made the man and the woman. And therefore, because this is true, it shouldn't surprise us to sometimes find in the Bible special instructions to women and special roles assigned especially to women, and special instructions to men, and special roles assigned especially for women, as we do in the passage before us that we begin to take up this morning. 
Well, we begin today with what Paul says to the men in the church here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Having given instruction about the nature of the church's prayer, the objects of, of prayer, and the reasons for such prayer, now he transitions into this new section with specific directives for men and women. And he gives instruction concerning the leadership of the prayer in the church. Verse 8. I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Now, as we begin to look at this, notice with me, first of all, the nature of this directive. The apostle says, I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere. Interestingly, the Greek word translated desire here, it's not the same word translated desire up in verse 4, when Paul said, God desires all men to be saved. It's a different word. It's the Greek word, bulamai. The word in verse 4 is thelo. Now, it would be wrong uh, to make too much of this because these two words are often used synonymously in the Greek New Testament, but both could simply be translated, I will. I will that the men pray everywhere. God wills all men to be saved. But this particular word, bulamai, is a word that's frequently used of the divine counsel or purpose, or decree in the New Testament. Or to refer to an intention or purpose formed after deliberation. In other words, Paul is not just expressing a wish here, or an opinion. Keep in mind who this is who is saying this. Paul is not just an ordinary Christian giving out his personal opinions. No, the man who says, I desire or I will, was an apostle of Jesus Christ. An inspired apostle who is speaking by the inspiration of the Spirit and by the authority of Jesus Christ. And that's why he could say in 1 Corinthians 14, 37, that the things I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. And this is why after giving all of this very detailed practical instruction that he gives to Timothy in this letter, he says in chapter 6 verse 3, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is proud knowing nothing. In other words, Paul says that his instructions are the very words of Christ. So what we have here in our text, and in the verses that follow, by the way, that immediately uh, follow immediately, uh, where this verb in verse 8 is assumed and carried over into the two verses that follow about women's adornment, as he says, in like manner, the women, all of this is, is not merely Paul's personal opinion as a man or as a rabbi or as the product of first century culture. They are his settled determination and expressed will as an apostle of Jesus Christ for all of the churches of Christ. This comes to us with the force of an apostolic decree, we could say. Well, having considered the nature of this directive, let's focus now secondly on the content of the directive. There are basically three parts to it, very simply. The persons specified, the context envisioned, and the manner required. So notice, first of all, the persons specified. Paul writes, I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere. Now, Now, there's something we must not miss here. Paul uses the Greek word aner, the plural form of andros, which is translated men. Men. This is a word that specifically designates adult males as opposed to women and children. In the Greek New Testament, there are several words used by the Holy Spirit that are translated man or men. The most common one is probably the word anthropos. You think about uh, anthropology, the study of what makes us human. Or in terms of theological categories, anthropology is the doctrine of man, of mankind. Anthropos is often used in a generic sense to refer to humans whether male or female. We do this in English. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Now those words from our Declaration of Independence are using the word men in a generic sense, in a way that includes all humans, males and females, mankind. Well, that's the way the word anthropos is often used in the New Testament. In fact, that's the word Paul used up in verse 4. 
when he said God desires all men to be saved. He doesn't just mean all males. He's using it in a generic sense. All humankind, all peoples. The men there includes males and females. It's the word he used up in verse 1 when he said that prayers are, are to be made for all men. But that's not the word that he uses here. The word he uses here, anir, or the, the plural form of that, specifically refers to adult males. It's the word, for example, in Acts chapter 8, verse 12, where we read these words, but when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both men, here's our word, and women were baptized. And there we see this word used with reference to males in distinction from females. Sometimes it's used in the context where it refers to husbands in distinction from wives. And it's also used sometimes to distinguish adult males from boys or infants. We have a clear example of that in 1 Corinthians 13, 11. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, an heir... I put away childish things. So that's the word that Paul uses here in our text. Therefore, the persons specified in this directive are adult males. Now hold your horses. I know that raises questions, right, in your mind. And I'll come back to those in a moment. The persons specified, adult males. <coughs> now notice secondly. The context and vision. This is very important, the context and vision. In what context are the men, adult males, to pray? And at this, this point, the, the translation of the New King James is okay, but it's not very clear. The New King James says everywhere. And you know, that's not a bad translation, but it could give the, the, the impression that Paul is simply saying, no more than all over the world, men ought to pray. Now that's true, and that thought may be included here. He may in part be anticipating the spread of the gospel to more and more places as foretold by the prophet Malachi. Malachi 1.11, for from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered in my name and a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the nations. But everywhere is not the most precise translation of what Paul writes here. A more literal translation would be, I will therefore that men pray in every place. En ponte topo, in every place. And this helps us to see that apparently what Paul mainly has in mind is every place where a church is. Every place of worship. Wherever his people meet to pray. I will that the men pray. Now, to help you to see that that's the context he's thinking of, first of all, remember the theme of 1 Timothy, and especially this particular section of 1 Timothy, as Paul states it over in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. What was Paul's purpose in writing this epistle? Why did he write these things? Chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. You may want to look over there. He says, these things I write to you. Though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I'm delayed, Timothy, it's kind of a stopgap measure, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself. And remember I pointed out a couple of weeks ago, there's no pronoun in the Greek text. It's, it's applied there to smooth out the English. Literally, it says, how ought to behave or how ought to conduct. Or we could translate it, how people ought to conduct themselves, how it is necessary to behave, in what context? In the house of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. So Timothy, I write these things for the specific purpose of setting forth proper behavior in a specific context. And what is that context? The house of God. So you see, the context envisioned in this segment of the epistle is God's house. Now that's not referring to a building, it's referring to the community of God's people. 
and the community of God's people, not as isolated individuals, but as the church, the local church. What Paul has in mind here is the church universal as it is given expression in local churches like the church at Ephesus, where Timothy was serving at the time. Wherever such a church is and gathers and carries out the functions, Christ is assigned to the church. And this is evident throughout this epistle that this is the context in mind, especially so in this section of the epistle. In chapter 2, 1 to 8, he deals with the prayers of the church, as we've seen. And now here in verse 8, he also transitions and he begins to address men in the church and then the behavior of women in the church assemblies, verses 8 to 15. And then in chapter 3, he takes up the officers of the church. And the fact that this is the context he has in mind is also follow, uh, confirmed by what follows our text. In verses, immediately follows it. In verses 11 to 12, look at what he says there. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Now, is Paul saying that women can never teach anywhere or in any context? Is he saying that women must always be quiet wherever they might happen to be? No, that's not what he's saying. And as I'll show us more detail when we get to those verses, if we had time, I could show you from the New Testament that there are contexts in which women may teach and should teach. Private one-on-one context like counseling and things of that nature. Context in which they're teaching children like a Sunday school class or teaching other women like in a ladies' Bible study or in a ladies' conference or something of that nature. But what Paul is talking about here is that they are not to teach men in the church. That function of teaching and preaching in the church as well as the function of having leadership in the church over men, Paul says, is reserved for men. Now, all of that tells us then that the context Paul has in mind when he directs the men to pray in every place is every place where a church is, every place where a church is established and gathers together as an assembly of God's people. That's the context. Now, before we get to the manner in which these prayers are to be offered, I want to pause now a few minutes to address a couple of questions that I'm sure some of you may be wondering about. And the first question is this, by directing men to pray in the church, is Paul also, by implication, forbidding women to pray in the church? And there are many godly and credible pastors and Bible commentators who have understood this passage that way. And there are many credible, godly Bible commentators and pastors who have not understood it in precisely that way. And so this is the question. Does Paul's directive to men to pray in the church by implication forbid women to do so? Well, let me say that I don't think that question can be dogmatically answered from this text alone. And I say that because what we have here is a directive to the men to pray in the church. That's what we have. And that's all we have. There's nothing here specifically forbidding women to do so. In the same way, think about it. In verses 9 to 10, we have a directive to women to practice modesty. And not only that, but also moderation in the way they dress in the church. Well, are we then to understand that as forbidding men? to practice moderation in the way they dress in the public gatherings? Of course not. It's not hard to see that to understand the directive to women in that way would be silly, be ludicrous. Well, it seems to me if we're going to be consistent in the way we interpret these texts, that would mean if, if we understood the directive to men to pray as meaning that it's also forbidding women to do so, you must understand the directive to women to practice moderation in their attire as forbidding men to do so. And of course, we know that's not the case. You see, my point is to interpret our text about men praying in this way is really to make this text say more than it actually says. If Paul were intending to forbid women to pray under all circumstances, he was certainly capable of clearly stating that, just as he does clearly state in verse 12 that women are not to teach or exercise authority over men in the church. You see, it could legitimately be argued, as Jeff Thomas does in a sermon on this text, 
that what Paul is doing here is he's thinking about Christian men and women in the church with respect to their different tendencies and weaknesses. Weaknesses and temptations peculiar to each sex. A weakness often found in men is being passive and not stepping up and being leaders and setting an example in the church in prayer. So he says to the men, I will therefore that the men pray in every place, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. A weakness often found in women is trying to show off your body or being ostentatious to draw undue attention to yourself in the way you dress. So he addresses the women about the way they dress themselves in public meetings. That's a possible way of interpreting this text. And it's a credible way. He's addressing men where men tend to be slack and weak. And he's addressing women where they tend to be tempted and weak. I think it's pushing it too far, I think, to take this as a prohibition against women praying at all in any kind of church gathering. Now, I will say this. I am convinced that a proper understanding of 1 Corinthians chapter 14 does forbid women to lead the public prayers in what we might call an official gathering of the whole church for corporate worship and to sit under the ministry of the word. My understanding of 1 Corinthians 14 would forbid women to do that as well as to teach uh, men and to preach to the church in such a setting. And we'll say more about that later. And Paul, uh, Paul's words here about men praying may be assuming that specific, that precise of a setting, but it's not as clear. They don't necessarily, this text alone doesn't settle that question. But together with 1 Corinthians 14, it does raise, and they together do raise another question. Are there no circumstances at all in a gathering of Christians in which the women can also pray or even pray vocally. Well, to take it that far, I think would definitely be wrong. Women are commanded in Scripture to pray just as men are. Certainly women should pray in their families. Also, women should always join in the public prayers during the Sunday worship in the church, in their hearts, silently, like Hannah did in the tabernacle in 1 Samuel chapter 1. And there are other public settings in which women may pray, not just silently, but vocally. Uh, Paul, in fact, recognizes this in 1 Corinthians 11 when he's speaking about a woman's head covering. Now, I'm not going to take time to open all that up this morning and run down that rabbit trail. What exactly was that, that, that cultural symbol? Uh, what was that talking about? But it was in that context that Paul said that a woman is not to pray in the presence of men without having her head covered. In other words, without a properly expressed recognition and deference to male leadership. So according to that passage, there are settings in which both men and women are present in which it's appropriate for women to pray vocally. Well, these are some of the reasons I'm not willing to be dogmatic and say that it's always wrong for women to pray vocally. For example, in a church prayer meeting. Perhaps there may be, that may be viewed differently by some, and it is viewed differently by some than a public worship service on the Lord's Day. And I'm willing to be charitable that there are different, there are different views of that on that particular uh, specific issue. And certainly, women may pray in smaller prayer meetings with both men and women presence, which are not the same as a public worship services. Situation like our regional prayer meetings in various homes once a month. But with all of that said, okay, with all of that plowed through, okay, all of that said, one thing is very, very clear from Paul's directive in our text. It tells us that the men of the church are to take the initiative and to step up and to provide leadership in the prayers of the church. They're not to be passive. They're to embrace their responsibility as men to lead and to set the example and to be in the forefront when it comes to the church's prayers. And let me just say, if you want to see what that's like, what it's like when the men step up and lead the church's prayers, you ought to come to our weekly prayer meetings. What a great blessing those prayer meetings are. This last week's prayer meeting was awesome, man. I came away so encouraged after our prayer meeting. And I thank God that we have men who pray. 
And it is the men who lead the prayers in our prayer meetings. Keep at it. And for some of you men, you need to step up. You need to start doing your part. But isn't this the opposite of what is true in so many churches? Sadly, many churches don't have prayer meetings at all. Indeed, many barely pray, even during the Sunday worship services. And those churches that do have a prayer meeting, hardly anyone comes. Or if any do, it's mostly women. This is one of the great problems in the churches. There's this noticeable absence of men. And whatever men are there, they may show up to church physically, but that's often all they do at best. They just show up. Women do all the work in the church, and if there were no women to pray, no one would pray. It's a disgrace. What about you? My dear brother, do you have great energy and great initiative when it comes to many other things? But for some reason, you seem to have very little energy, very little initiative when it comes to being a spiritual leader in your home and also in the church, and especially when it comes to the church's prayers and prayer meetings. My dear brother, it ought not to be that way. Paul says, I desire, I will, therefore, that the men pray in every place. He doesn't say, if you men feel like it, pray. No, he says, I will, therefore, that the men pray. This comes as an apostolic directive. And how should you men respond to that? You should embrace it. You should cry to God to help you, to give you grace to act upon it, and to embrace your responsibility as a man. Sometimes I don't feel like preaching. Sometimes I'm nervous. I'm afraid to stand up in front of a congregation of people. Say, Pastor, you don't seem like you're afraid. You do this all the time. But it's true. Especially in some contexts, I'm scared to death. Sometimes I get up to preach and I'm afraid it's going to be a flop, that I'm going to sound stupid. I'm going to make a fool out of myself. Perhaps I'm doing that today. <laughs> so what do I do? Well, I ask the Lord to help me. And I get up and I preach anyhow. And very often it says I embrace my duty out of sheer obedience to God that the Holy Spirit meets me in the act and all of the right feelings begin to come and I begin to have a sense of liberty as I speak. Sometimes I feel like a man jumping out of an airplane. From 10,000 feet with a parachute on. I leap out knowing that if the parachute doesn't open and the wind of the Spirit doesn't catch it, then I'm going to crash and burn. But I leap, trusting that God will help me. And the same thing is true in prayer. Listen, few things are more discouraging and more disgraceful and more dishonoring to God than to attend a gathering of the church to pray. And instead of men being the spiritual leaders that God has called them to be, they either don't show up or they just sit there mute and never participate. Now, I know that we can't push this directive so far as to say that every single man in the church must pray every single time the opportunity is given in a church meeting. But I do believe that if you have no desire to do this and you never participate ever at all, that you are neglecting one aspect of your God-given role as a man in the church. Listen, if all of us men truly embrace this directive, there ought to be such an atmosphere of eagerness to pray in prayer meeting or whenever the opportunity is given that if you don't jump up in a hurry, you're going to miss the opportunity. And listen, let me say, I'm thrilled that that's actually the way it is in our prayer meetings on Wednesday evenings. Praise the Lord for that. But my dear friend, where do you, singular you, where do you, as a man, fit in here? Now, I, I want to be sympathetic. Listen, I know. I, I am sympathetic to how intimidating and fearful it can be sometimes. I still remember when I was a very, very, very young pastor, and there was an older 
man had been in the way for a long time and he came up to me after the worship service. He wanted to talk to me about my public prayers. And he had actually counted how many times I had said the Lord's name in my prayer. You know the, the tendency we had to fall into, Lord, thank you, Lord, for this is a wonderful day, Lord, help us, Lord. And he had counted all the times I had said that. And it was humiliating. It was embarrassing when he talked to me about that. But he was trying to help me. And I was thankful that he did that. And it was very helpful. It was something, it was a habit I had, that I didn't realize I was doing. And yeah, it had to go through a little bit of embarrassment there to learn how to pray better publicly, right? I still remember when I used to go to the Mebbins Pastors Fraternal. That was, I think, the first thing like that I ever went to as a very young pastor. And I went to the fraternal they used to have out in Mebbin, North Carolina. In fact, Randy Pizzino was there, anything. And they would have a prayer meeting. And these men, these venerable men that had been in the ministry for many years, godly men, they would get up to pray. And their prayers were just amazing prayers. I was scared to death to get up and pray in that context. I mean, I thought if I get up and pray, they're going to think I'm a, you know, man, I, I, can't, I can't pray the way these men pray. But I had to get over that. You have to press through it. You have to overcome it. The only way to learn how to pray publicly is to begin to do it. Now, of course, it starts in your private prayers. The best way to learn how to pray well publicly is to know what it is regularly and consistently to pour out your heart to God privately. But even then, public prayer can be more challenging for some of you. So what should you do? Well, dear brother, first of all, know that we love you. We love you. <laughs> no one's going to be judging you or nitpicking at your prayers. I won't, I'll try not to humiliate you like that man did, did me. Now, I, I may come along privately and try to be really gracious. Say, hey, maybe you should work on this area or something like that. And, and we should all be doing that for one another, right? We all love each other. We're not judging one another. We're not nitpicking at one another. We're just glad that you got up and prayed. No one's going to be judging you. We're all pulling for you. So take the plunge, get over the hop, jump out of the airplane. And you know what? Not only will that be a great blessing to the church, it will be a great blessing to your own soul and to your own spiritual growth as a man as well. Well, we've considered the person specified, adult males, the context envisioned in the church, a meeting of the church. And then we have thirdly and finally the manner required very briefly how or in what manner are men to offer up prayers in the church Paul says they are to do so lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting so first Paul makes reference to the posture of the body and we do learn from the writings of the early church fathers that this was a, a common way for men to pray in the public worship, standing with their hands stretched out. It's, what, it's not the only way that they did, but it was a common posture. Also, this is not the only posture mentioned in Scripture. It's just, in fact, it's just one of many. In fact, Hendrickson in his commentary references no less than at least eight prayer postures that we see in Scripture. You see, the real emphasis of Scripture is, and really of this text, is not so much the posture of the body or the position of the hands, it's the spiritual condition and the inner attitude of the one who is praying. The hands that are lifted up are to be holy. That is, they are to be hands of someone who is set apart entirely unto God, devoted without reservation to Jesus Christ. They are to be hands of someone who is not defiled by unconfessed sin that he's determined to cling to. Furthermore, the one who prays and leads the church in prayer must do so without wrath and doubting. And this word wrath refers to a settled indignation, a settled anger, something like a smoldering grudge in your heart against another brother or sister in the church. A bitter prickly spirit that's quick to hold a grudge unwilling to forgive and by the way that's not only a hindrance to the prayers of men in public praying but of women too and of any Christian in general in any kind of praying 
And then we have the word translated doubting, dialogismos. It's a word related to our word, as you could probably guess, dialogue. And here's a man who's deliberating within himself. He's questioning something. Now, some have understood it as referring to a dispute with others. You may see it translate. Some of you in your, your English versions, you may see it translate disputing. They're trying to kind of fit that translation in with the wrath that kind of tie those two things together there's there's anger and disputing an argumentative angry spirit and it could it could it could mean that but I think the translation doubting is probably really the best translation it's the idea of someone who's questioning something he's deliberating within himself it's the picture of a heart that's marked by we could say a wavering lack of faith and so when you put all of this together what Paul is basically saying is that when men lead the prayers of the church, they must pray from a heart that is void of offense toward God, holy hands, void of offense toward men, without wrath, and they must not pray in unbelief. They must not be praying in a spirit of just going through the motions of prayer with no real expectation, no real confidence that God actually hears your prayers. Indeed, if you think about it, these are the three great conditions of acceptable prayer that are laid out for us in Scripture. First, holy hands. Void of offense toward God. That doesn't mean we don't sin. That doesn't mean we're not guilty of sins. But it means that we're not clinging to any sin that we're unwilling to, to let go of. That we're confessing our sins. We're walking in, in the light. Confessing our sins, laying hold daily and afresh the blood of Christ to cleanse us from our sins. Holy hands. Psalm 66, 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And husbands, remember what Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 7, husbands likewise dwell with your wives with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. And then two, there's without wrath. And bitterness, being void of offense toward man. Matthew eleven twenty five. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him. That your Father in heaven may also forgive your trespasses. And that your Father in heaven might hear and respond to your prayers. And then three, we have without doubting. 1 John five fourteen. This is the confidence that we have in him, or that we should have, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Let him ask without doubting, without wavering, James says in James chapter 1. This is the manner. Of course, in which we are all to pray, men and women and children, privately, as well as this is the manner in which men are to lead the church in prayer. And this reminds us of how much, let me just say, this reminds us of how much we need the Lord Jesus when we come to pray. How much we need his blood to make us acceptable to God because we often struggle with those very things, don't we? The very things that Paul underscores here. We struggle with them, these sins that would hinder our prayers. So we must always come to our Heavenly Father in prayer with Christ in our arms, as it were. Coming like the tax collector in our Lord's parable, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Confessing our sins so that we come before him in the right heart attitude, in the right spirit that Paul is commending to the men here, trusting in Christ, knowing that his blood is sufficient to cleanse us from all iniquity and seeking grace from him to pray in this manner in which we ought to pray. This is why Christians pray in the name of Jesus. What does that mean? Is that just sort of kind of a ritual that we just sort of tag on in the name of Jesus at the end of our prayers. Now, what are we saying when we pray in the name of Jesus? We're saying that, that we are praying by the authority of Jesus Christ. We're praying as those who are trusting wholly in the Lord Jesus Christ and his work for us as our high priest, as our sacrifice to make our prayers acceptable to God. We're not praying as, as a Muslim who's a monotheist, but he doesn't come to God in the name of Jesus. We're praying as Christians who come to God in Jesus' name. We come to God through him. Remember we saw last week, he is the only mediator 
between God and man. He offered himself up the ransom for our sins. It is he who reconciles us to God and opens the way into the holy place where we can come, pour out our hearts to our heavenly father in the confidence that he loves us, that he receives us, and that he hears us. That's the confidence that every Christian ought to have. Every Christian man, every Christian woman, And if you don't have that confidence this morning, may God grant that you will come to know that confidence by turning from your sin and running to this Christ, this Savior who's offered to mankind in the gospel. And God says, come, receive him, and you will be saved. His blood can wipe away. His blood is sufficient. His death that he died on the cross is of sufficient value and worth to atone for all of the sins that you've ever committed against God. And he's been raised from the dead, triumphant over sin and death, God declaring that his sacrifice was sufficient, that he is Lord of all. And the gospel has come to this Christ with no reservations, no conditions, come to him as a self-condemned, unworthy sinner for the salvation that he freely gives and he will receive you and he will save you and you can pray to the heavenly father in the confidence that his ear is always open to you. Well, may God bless his word to our hearts this morning. Next week, we'll get all into the passage, the part you were hoping I was gonna get into. (laughs) Today, God willing, we'll, we'll do that next week. Let's pray. Our father, we thank you this morning for your holy word. We thank you for its clarity, how relevant it is to the practical lives of your people and to the life of the church. Help us men to step up to be the men that you've called us to be in our homes, but also in the church. And we pray, Father, that you'd help us all to grow in this area of prayer. That, that Lord, um, whatever weaknesses we, we have, whatever gifts we are lacking, we pray that you would make us all to be men who know how to pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org